0: come up. We have a lot of great resources, including um, uh, resources related to Oregon, as well as some of the other states we're working in. And we also have um, what we call our Blue Carbon Network, which is a forum for states and, and you know managers and others interested in blue carbon um, to get more information about um, emerging science, participate in webinars um, and whatnot. So folks can check out Pew uh, Blue Carbon Network if they're interested in signing up. Well, Sylvia Troost and Joanna Lyle, thank you so much for joining us on Coast Range Radio. Thank you so much for your hard work and and all the best in the future.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And that's our show. We're going to have links to the State of the Science Report and other resources in the show description of this episode of our podcast and at our website, coastrange.org. Speaking of which, our entire archive is available, you guessed it, wherever you get your podcasts or at coastrange.org. And you can email me anytime, michael at coastrange.org. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks.
2: tuned in to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming on the web at KBOO.FM.
1: KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Development and Events Committee will meet on the third Monday of each month at 5.30 p.m. Please visit our website at kbu.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. Howdy, everybody. I'm Rose Maddox, and I'd like to tell you that you're listening to KBOO in Portland, Oregon, the station that I listen to when I'm in the area.
2: Good evening, and welcome to Labor Radio, of the working class, by the working class, for the working class. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and we're broadcasting around the world from Portland, Oregon. I'm a public school teacher and host every second Monday of the month, where we typically interview educators and talk about what's going on in their schools and in their unions. And joining us today is Mark Norberg. Welcome, Mark.
0: Stephen, thank you for having me.
2: Yeah, it's great to have you here. So, Mark, our first question often when we have guests is to tell us about your experience as an educator and also what inspired you to go into teaching.
0: Okay, sure. Well, I currently, I teach eighth grade English at John Muir Middle School in Burbank, California, but I'm originally from South Dakota. Uh, I lived there, grew up there, went to school there. Um, I come from a family of teachers. My dad's a teacher, my brother, my sister's a teacher, her husband's a teacher, my aunt and uncle are teachers, their kids are teachers, wow. so I was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, uh, all we did was talk about, you know, um, schools and kids and schedules, and I grew up, uh, you know, thinking having your summers off was normal, and every conceivable holiday was just normal. And, um, but I was like, I would never want to be a teacher, never want to be a teacher. So I I moved to California in 93 or four, I think, and, um, was going to make it in the movie business. And I didn't know anything about movie making. All I knew was from the movies. So I had this dream of like, oh, it's going to be so exciting. Um, and I, I, uh, I got... Um, into the film business for a while. And I did not realize that it's mostly sitting around for hours and hours and uh, waiting for things. And I was bored out of my mind. And I said, okay, I, I can't do this. So I, I took a job at the LA Times. It was just open up the paper and they were, there was sales positions. I'd never done sales in my life. And I thought, I'll, I'll do this um, just while I figure out what do I wanna do? Well, skip forward 20 years later, and I'm managing an advertising department at the LA Times, um, uh, and uh, I'm really making a lot of money, and it's I'm doing really really well. And uh, suddenly I was like, I don't want to do this much longer. Uh, I I'm happy now, but I know in about five years I'm going to really hate it because it started to really gnaw me that everything my the value that people had in me was how much money I'm generating Mm
1: -hmm. and it
0: was really started to wear on me I wanted to do something with my life and I didn't know what that was and I remember I took a day off and I was like I just I have to figure out what I'm doing and what I realized was that I was when I was thinking about what I wanted to do I would I was only looking for things that would make the same amount of money or more that I was making and I said okay what if I took money off the table and immediately I was like I want to teach English Mm. I I yeah. loved reading. I've always been a huge reader, and I'm like I want to talk about books, and I want to I want to uh, uh, discuss books and teach kids about about reading, and and uh, I want to work with kids. And I went back to school at nights uh, and got an English degree, and it was the best part of my day. I the minute I stepped on campus that first time, I was in love. I was like this. What? Where have I been? <laughs> right? What have mm-hmm. I been doing? And yeah. it took me about. Four years to get my degree, and then I I I took I quit and uh, took two years off to get my credential, and this was at a time everyone was saying um, there's no teaching jobs. This is the worst time to get into teaching. I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. I just got to go for it, and I did my student teaching, and I was I was going to be a eleventh or twelfth grade um, AP English teacher, and uh, you know I knew I had to do my my student teaching in middle school. And I thought, I'll just bite the bullet. And yeah, I gotta go through it. And I was placed here at John Muir. And the minute I walked through the door, I loved it. And they ended up offering me a a job while I was student teaching. And uh, that was nine years ago. I've been teaching now for nine years. And the other thing that, um, when you talk about like union work, the LA Times was not union. They're virulently anti-union. So I, it was normal to not have a union. Um, you had no recourse when there was a dispute with management. You would be just told what to do every two years. We would be hauled into um, this big auditorium and told our pay plan was changing and you just had to deal with it. Um, and both on when I was a sales rep and then on management on both sides, I remember wishing that we had a union as a sales rep because I, I was there was no power at all. And then on the management side, there was nothing stopping upper management from pushing managers to just, you know, squeeze employees, you know, uh, and work them, you know, uh, you know, really, really hard to make their goals. Yeah. Um, and when I when I became a teacher, I immediately was like, "How do I join the union?" And I I jumped in and like, "What can I do?" And I started participating. And if you've only worked in a union environment, if if you've worked exclusively as a teacher. It, it is really hard to explain what it means to be in a union and how a union just permeates the workplace. I mean, I could feel it the minute I started working at, at the public school where I'm at. I mean, the I remember like week two or so, my principal came to my room and he asked me to do something that was well within his rights, right? Right but he asked me and I was like, why is mm-hmm. he asking me to do this? And I'm like, it's a union, right? It creates this culture where you are up here with your administrators. And I just saw this just in every aspect, like how we're treated as human beings. And we're a part of the, of the process that we sit down every year and negotiate. How are we going to do our jobs? And it's amazing. And I tell people I will take a bad union any day over no, no union. And we have an amazing union. I mean, the the NEA, the CTA, the Burbank Teachers Association are all very, very strong. There's problems for sure. And I'll go into what I see as things that need to be fixed. But we have an incredible union. And I'm so proud and and am so invested in doing what I can to, to make our union as solid and strong and and as great as it can be. So that's a little bit about my journey.
2: Yeah, and you kind of, and you started to lead into talking about your union. So, what roles do you play, or offices do you hold in in your local or state? I'm not sure what what all you are involved
0: with. Hmm. Yes. Well, I I'm like I said, I, I jumped in right away, and I just wanted to know everything there was. So I've I've volunteered for almost everything that's been available. So I'm I'm a site rep um at my school where there's one of four um i am um on the executive board uh of our local uh i am a state council representative um back to being at the local though i I'm, i'm also on the organizing committee and the endorsement committee and on the justice and equity committee um and whatever else I can do. Uh, uh, but on the state level, at uh, California Teachers Association, I'm a, a state delegate. Um, and if I say acronyms that don't make sense, because I know you're in Oregon, and I, I everyone I think that I, I talk to, I, I assume you're in California, and I forget, Nope, oh, we're, we're, we're in other states. Um, so I'm a state council delegate. I serve on the Financing Public Education Committee. I am the vice chair of the California BATS caucus. That stands Mm -hmm. for badass teachers. We're well known as one of the most, probably the most progressive caucus and real, like roll up your sleeves and really do stuff, right? Super organizers. I'm co-chair of the ecology caucus, and that was something that kind of was uh, given birth by the Badass Teachers Caucus. We had a a divestment committee and that grew so much that we said, let's branch out and just, we need a whole green curriculum, green schools, divestment, just it all, you know, caucus on its own. And we just started that. Um, And I feel like there's one other thing I do. Oh, uh, I'm on the equity. I've served on the um, uh, steering committee of my service center and the equity team there. And then I'm also a national delegate uh, to the NEA and I work with the, the National Bats team I participate with them whenever they've got something going on so okay. I, I've tried that's, to all? that's all you everything. do that's it
2: <laughs> nothing more <laughs> okay so you've got a lot going on a lot on your plate um, I invited you on the show because of your willingness to engage with NEA that's how I um, that's how you and I crossed paths that's NEA. So, for folks that aren't aware, the National Education Association. So, talk about your early experiences and and perspectives that you had related to the NEA, and Mm -hmm. what led up to your decision to run for NEA president. Um, I -hmm. think it was two. Was it two years ago? I think it was
0: three years ago. Every every three years, yeah. Uh, Two and a half years ago. Um, So, it was three years in. Like I told you, as soon as I started teaching I joined the union right away right I think it was three years in before I even had heard of I knew that we were a part of like we roll up to the CTA and then up to the NEA and that that was kind of fuzzy right I kind of knew there was but at some point somebody said are you going to go to the RA I'm like what is that what RA what does that even mean oh our representative assembly it's this big national meeting we hold every year and I'm like what we have a big national convention. What? What's going on? I'd never even heard of it. Yeah, And uh, I didn't know who our president was, our national president. Uh, at the time, I think it was Lily Eskelson Garcia. Um, I mean, I it was like all this stuff was going on and I didn't know. And that right away concerned me. I'm like, and I don't know if this is similar in other locals, but I, I felt like, where is the NEA? Uh, why don't I know about them, right? Um, why don't I know how they affect my life? It's this massive organization. So I, I put my name in for uh to be a delegate to the national convention. And this was in Houston, which was three years four wait, six years ago, I think. Yeah. Okay. I was in Houston six years ago. And I got I won. I was I was elected. And uh they fly you out and they put you up and it's all paid. And I was blown away. It's, I don't know. Have you been, Stephen? Yes. You've been. Oh, we did meet in, in Houston originally or Chicago. Yes. Yes. Anyway, um, uh, I was blown away by the size and the, the organization. Um, I I just every day I was just in this, this, this haze of like, Mm. I can't believe how big we are. And how powerful and organized! And I remember sitting there in the audience, and the president was like, "Well, this is my last year, and um, I, uh, I'm, re- you know, I'm I'm leaving." And and you know, thank you all. And I remember turning to the person sitting next to me, and I said, well, "How do you run for president?" I was just curious, and they go, "I don't know." <laughs> it's like oh. so. I went back to my hotel room and I googled, and it's like you only need to be an, a member for two years. That's it. I had just assumed there was all these things you had to do, you know, committees you had to be on and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's phenomenal. And then I kept reading and it's like, oh, and you get, you get five minutes on the stage at the national convention for your campaign speech. And by this point, I I was really kind of cataloging all these, all these things that I'm like, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing this? And I thought I kind of had this knot in my stomach because I, I really like, Pushing myself, right? When I see opportunities. Yep. And I immediately knew I'm gonna have to do this and it's gonna really suck because it's gonna I, I'm very shy person, actually. I get horrible stage fright, but I'm like, oh I'm gonna make myself do it. Yeah. And I put my name in the ring. And everyone was like, What? What are you doing? And I'm like, I, I gotta get on that stage. I just have to there's things that we're not talking about. And What I had come to really realize was we're sitting on this massive organizing infrastructure. I mean, we are embedded in every neighborhood, in every city, in every state from coast to coast, embedded and Alaska and Hawaii, and as some of its most trusted members. And what are we doing with that? What are we doing? And like nothing, right? I mean, the NEA does stuff but we don't organize nationally for anything. And then I was like, well, you know, the big problems that we face, what, what are those? I would list those as school funding, teacher compensation, crushing healthcare costs, vouchers, and Janus. There's a lot more, but I would say those are the top five. Mm-hmm. And what is our solution? What have we been doing to address those well? We put the responsibility for solving all these giant problems on the backs of our local unions. Local unions, if you want better funding, you go figure it out. If you want better teacher pay, you go figure it out. If you don't, if you don't like your healthcare costs, you go figure it out. Vouchers and Janice, same thing. And I'm like, how's that working out for us? I mean, in California, we're going on 50 years since Prop 13 gutted our education funding. We used to be number one in the nation. Well known. College was practically free, schools were, you know the highest per people funding we're now 34th or 32nd and we've been that way for 50 years that's half a century and i'm like if california the the fourth largest economy in the world and the biggest member of the union can't figure it out no one can figure it out and it's very simple these problems are not local problems they're deeply systemic problems They have to do with the way this country has decided to address these issues. And that means they're only going to be solved at the national, federal level, which means a national organizing game plan to go after these things. And I'm like, I'm going to run, and I'm going to run just on that message that we have got to start talking about organizing. And that's the other thing, is we don't even try. We don't even talk about organizing nationally. And I'd like to know why that is. Uh, That's really crazy to me. And so I'm gonna make people talk about it and I'm gonna get on that stage and talk about it. Now, when I ran last time, I was really disappointed because I'd worked on this speech and then that's when COVID hit. And -hmm. so that was the year where we were online. And so I got to make a video, but they showed this video and I don't remember how many people saw it. I don't know what the numbers were, but I will say this, that for the for a first time run, I came in second. There was three candidates that last time. Now there's, I believe just two myself and President Pringle. Um, but the, the the third place candidate had 200 some votes. I had 400. I doubled the third place. Now, the, the winner, of course, had like thousands, right? But I was like, that's not too shabby for somebody nobody knows. And I've never done this before. And I'm really glad I did it because I, it was really scary. But the other great thing, not only do you get to speak at the convention, but every state and every major caucus does endorsement interviews. So I go, I don't literally go around the country, but I did Zoom calls with every state endorsement committee. And if you know anything about endorsement committees, it's its the leaders of that particular union. It's people that are, you know, really invested. Yeah. And so I had this conversation with hundreds of people and I could see that even though they were not going to endorse me, I didn't get I didn't get a single endorsement. Um, they were I was resonating, and this time around, I've started my interviews again. I now I really know people because I've been really working at the state level quite a while. At the national level, I now know these people a lot of the times, or I recognize them from my last round, and I'm able to say, "Remember three years ago, I said." If we continue electing these same members of this current executive team, nothing's going to change. None of them are talking about mobilizing nationally. And I'm able to say, here we are again. Nothing changed. I'm running again because we've got to have an option, an option of somebody saying, uh, you know, if you're tired of this endless hamster wheel and just once you'd like to see what it would look like if we mobilize nationally about something, then you've got a a candidate in me. And one last point is that, you know, when we talk about, well, what what would we mobilize nationally around? When I look at the the five big problems, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, funding, uh, uh, compensation, healthcare, vouchers, and Janus, it makes most sense to me to organize around something that has broad appeal, right? That it's not just for teachers, because that's what will that's what the criticism frequently is. Those teachers just want more pay or they just want this. What about me? To me, the absolute lowest hanging fruit is Medicare for all. And and uh, because it it, it enjoys something like 90% of the population wants it. It's like 60%, 60, 65% of Republicans want it. And I, I just have, I just think like, just think for a second what that would look like if the NEA stepped forward and said to the nation, we are going to lead we are going to lead in the fight for universal health care, right? We're going to lead this country. We could organize, just as an example, a weekend of marches and rallies in every community with the NEA itself organizing like a million teacher march on Washington, D.C. Uh, Tens of millions of people would rally to our call. I think it would be transformative, and it would not be that hard for us to do something like that. And that's that's the, the centerpiece of my campaign, and that's the conversation I'm having. And this second time around, I'm seeing even more people go, "Yeah, why aren't we doing that?" So right. that's it, that's yeah, the focus of my campaign.
2: What um, what sounds exciting to me about talking about Medicare for all is that uh, we can really make the focus on our students and their families, yes. right? Because We as union members, you know, have have healthcare. Now we can argue about how good it is, but we have we have our health care covered to some respect. But many of our students and their families do not. And so what an easy pivot, you know, away from oh, those, you know, those selfish, greedy teachers. No, this isn't about us. We have healthcare. (laughs) <laughs> this yeah, is about and, our students and their families.
0: Yeah, and it's everybody, and and even those that have insurance. Um, it, it's it's no it's it's no great gift. I mean, for no. the first time ever, I have members of my local saying to me, "I'm taking a pay cut this year because my healthcare costs are outstripping mm. the uh, raises that we're able to get. That is unsustainable, and you know that that is across the board." People have healthcare, but they can't use it. They're afraid to use it because it's—they don't want their rates to go up. Um, something like well over half, if not close to ninety percent, of personal bankruptcies are medically related. I mean, we've all seen like you know the the GoFundMe healthcare plan that this country is relying on. It's rampant. It's like normal now to see it. You know, to get emails from, "Hey, my uncle has cancer. Can you help us out?" It's. I think people. I think this country, especially the working class, is desperate for somebody to step forward and lead them. I mean, look at the Sanders campaign. Bernie Sanders made Medicare for All the centerpiece of his campaign. Mm -hmm. He was drawing crowds of 30, 40,000 people on average at every stop, tens of thousands of people. It wasn't because they wanted to go and listen to some cranky old guy, right? It was his message of we're gonna win Medicare for all, for everyone. And everyone just innately knows how that would transform their lives. I, I think that would be a, a shining moment for the NEA. And just think what that would do for unions, for people to go, we got healthcare because of the NEA. Wow. When we talk about how are you gonna engage members? I get this question a lot when we yeah. in, in interviews. Right, what are you gonna do to engage members? Uh, what are you gonna do to uh, increase our membership? Cause you know, we're bleeding members by the way, right? Um, It's like, well, you go, you take on something big that people love. They will flock to us. Right. And when you're talking about something as big as mobilizing nationally, every single person will have a job. There will be so many things we'll need people to do and they'll gladly do it because who doesn't want to be part of something big and exciting.
2: But Mark, uh, NEA mobilizes all the time. They, you know, we get asked to, um, you know, email our congressperson or, you know, Maybe we get to sign a petition. Isn't that mobilizing?
0: <laughs> well, that unfortunately, unfortunately, and this is my another big criticism of mine is, it seems to be the only thing we can think of is lobby our lobby Sacramento. That's our state house. Lobby Congress. All we can yes. do is what? What are we gonna? What are we going to instruct uh, or direct our lobbyists to do? That's all we ever talk about. And again, I just ask, uh, how's that working out for you? How's that working? And the other thing is, and this is where I lose people, right? But I, I, I have to call it like I see it. Uh, we've got to uh, uh, take a cold hard look at the political party that we're aligning with. Um, it, it is crystal clear that both the Republicans and the Democratic Party are awash in corporate cash and completely under their thumb. Um, the Democratic Party actively opposes Medicare for All actively opposes the green new deal uh actively opposes unions they just right in front of us broke the rail workers strike right yep. and what did we do what did we do about it did anybody at the nea or the state level or condemn that i, I was appalled appalled um that this happened and we're next I- if we think that we can stand by and support this party they don't like us they use us. We're in a very much an abusive. They like situation. us
2: for for our contributions.
0: Absolutely. And, and our, it's, and our but, votes. Our but votes. we're a joke. We're There's no. The Democratic Party does not take us seriously, because what do we do? Right. We ask. We go to them cap in hand and we ask for things. They throw us a, a table scrap, if that. And then what do we do? We turn around and we keep voting for them anyway. We have to change that calculus. Do you think the corporations that give the Democratic Party money lose any sleep over wondering if the Democrats will support them or help them out? Do you think the Democrats um, for a second ask themselves if they're gonna do what the corporations want them to do? No, because if they don't follow corporate orders, what's gonna happen? Those corporations will pull their money and go somewhere else. They know we're never gonna do that. And until that changes, we're never gonna get what we want. We will never have uh, uh, the Democratic Party pulling for us. So the first thing we've got to do is start mobilizing and returning unions to what they were originally created to do, which is a, a, a weapon, um, a cudgel against, you know, the small corporate elites. We have to make them politically afraid of us again, like they, like they were, you know, when our unions first started. Um, And the second thing we've got to do, and this is like big long term, you know, mobilize around the things that we can legitimately fight for and win, like Medicare for all. But we have got to have a political party in Washington that continues to fight and hold on to those gains. And so we should be having serious discussions about using our organizing power with other major labor unions to form a third party of labor that does not take corporate cash that can pose a real threat to the Democrats. And it only has to be big enough for them to think that we could go there with our votes. If we don't get what we want, that would be another big leg of what I would say we need to start thinking about.
2: Yeah. And I'm, I'm just so glad that you are getting your, your, your voice and your message out there. Um, I find it refreshing within NEA to hear voices like yours. So thank you so much for sure. stepping up and stepping out of your comfort zone. And I imagine it starts to get a little more comfortable the more you, the more you are are doing it. Um, do you want to maybe um, just let our listeners know if they want to hear more from you uh, or connect with you in some way? Um, sure. Yeah.
0: Um I I'm waffling exactly what I want to do. I really resist taking money from union members uh for campaigns. I I think campaigns should be union funded and it's based on like should be based on debates and forums. Um so I don't have a link now. I don't think I'm going to do that. But if you are interested in contacting me or hearing more about what I have to say, I have a YouTube channel Uh, It's just Mark Norberg YouTube. You'll find it if you Google that. And it's a bunch of videos I made when I first ran about all these different things that I'm talking about and more. They're all still relevant, so I haven't remade them. Um, And then you can find me on Facebook. It's just Mark Norberg, again, on Facebook. And I'm happy to uh, chat further, chat more, do Zoom calls. Um, If you've got ideas, if you like what you hear and you'd like to help, um, uh, yeah, let's talk.
2: All right. Well, thank you for joining us on KABU. Thank you, audience, for tuning in tonight. This is Stephen Siegel. You've been listening to Labor Radio. Tune in next Monday and every Monday at six o'clock to catch another Labor Radio show. Mm
1: Benjamin, I hope you listen to Community Radio, KBOO 90.7. Thank you for tuning in to KBOO Community Radio during this special programming campaign, All Thrills, No Frills, Volume 2.